Blog Talk Radio. Blog Talk Radio. Hi, my name's John Carousella, and I'm your host for Convergence on Firefly Willows L-I-V-E. Convergence is to consciousness as gravity is to the material world. In small amounts, gravity is overwhelmed by every other fundamental force of the universe. But gravity has something nothing else has. It's cumulative. The more matter you collect, the more gravity you get until it becomes the most powerful force of the material world. I think convergence is like that too. Only in this case, we're working with truth. The more truth we collect, the more convergence we experience. Connections, relationships, resonance of ideas and concepts, science and mysticism. Lately, deep truths just seem to be coming together, even as many of the illusions around us are falling apart. As within, so without. As above, so below. I know I'm feeling it, and I'll bet you are too. For the next 90 minutes, we'll be exploring concepts and topics that in some way or another bring us around to a deeper truth. Join me and my guests for this week's experience of Convergence. and thanks for joining us for today's program. Coming up, John will take us on a journey exploring reality in the long shadows of August. Then he'll have some spirited conversation all about play with three extraordinary women in two fascinating conversations. First, John speaks with visionary artist, creativity teacher, and coach, Annette Wagner. After which, he's joined by Wendy Marie, producer of A Shamanic Disco and director of Ecstatic Dance Silicon Valley and performance artist and dancer, Reina Satori. Then he'll share some insights on The Magician. If you have any questions or want to participate in today's program, sign in and join us in the chat room at blogtalkradio.com. Next up, the Firefly Willows LIVE Roundtable is an opportunity for all of our hosts to come together and share their thoughts, experience, and insights on a variety of topics. Listen in as each host takes a turn as moderator. Today's moderator is John Carousella with our topic, Play, a primer for us serious folks. Welcome to this week's roundtable. I'm John Carousella, hosting with my co-hosts. Deb Carousella. Hi, C. Letmer. Mildred Lynn McDonald. And we've gathered together this morning in Studio C in Los Altos for this week's roundtable topic on play. Now, I've been told that I'm a rather serious fellow and oftentimes too serious. So I'm trying to explore what it means to be more playful, to really to understand play in that serious kind of metaphysical way that I like to understand things. So I'm going to give it a go here with my uh, co-hosts, and perhaps you'll find some useful insights in this discussion too if you feel that maybe your life is a little bit play-deprived, or you're just wondering how to get more out of the playful moments in your life and see perhaps where that kind of whatever it is, that play thing, whatever it is, will take you. And I've been assured that in case I get too serious in this discussion, my co-hosts will do something to 
play with you. <laughs> to force me out of it. I'm, I'm looking for cattle prods or sharp objects or elbow range to my solar plexus. <laughs> so that's the idea. And I guess I would start with a couple of questions like, what does play mean to you? How do you, how do, you do it? And what's it good for? And why don't people play? Why don't people play more? I'll tell you one thing I noticed when I was doing my life coaching in Canada. I used to ask people to break their day down and give the percentage that they spent on work or they spent eating or they spent in relationships or on finances or whatever. And one category was always play, and consistently it ranked in the bottom three in terms of the amount of time people put into their play category. And for me, when I would ask people, why don't you play more, it was almost as if the play vibration was something that they felt needed to be left behind in childhood. So as an adult, they didn't incorporate or nourish playful time in their lives. But at the same time, when we were working together in a coaching environment, getting into the playful vibration, creating a space where we could both be open and laugh and play, was the place where we did the most effective and meaningful work. And I'd go as far to say it was the place where we experienced the most shifting in a positive direction. So I don't know if after those experiences, people were encouraged to see the value of play and incorporate more play in their lives, but I'd like to think so. I think many times people are afraid of perception and judgment how they will be perceived. As you said, children play. Grown-ups, serious people, people that have things to accomplish, well, they don't have time for play. And someone won't take them seriously or, or give them the, the due consideration that they require or need if they're seen as playful. Um, and in some instances, that's un unfortunately, I think, is correct. It's a correct assumption on people's parts. If someone is seen as a frivolous individual, if someone is seen as someone you can't count on because they're always goofing around or whatever, that's society's view of how one needs to be and how one operates when you become a responsible adult. I don't believe that you can't get things done, that you can't accomplish what you need to accomplish if you come at things from a playful perspective or if you're at least open to being light and receptive to play and to what play can teach you. Um, the relief of tension, the, the letting yourself have the benefit of the doubt, the, oh, you know what, I just screwed up. Oh, guess what, I didn't fall on my face or collapse or, or maybe I did fall on my face, but you know what, it was, was pretty funny, funny <laughs> you know, and man, I feel like an idiot, but boy, that was funny, but I survived. And maybe even someone was kind and stopped and, are you okay? And then kind of laughed it. with you. <laughs> right, well, as long as they're laughing with you, that's great. What do we lose? I mean, I'm, I'm saying this this way deliberately, a little bit provocatively. What do we lose when we play? I mean, if there's value in being serious and there's value in being focused, is there something that we lose, some some something useful, something productive, something of value that we lose when we decide that we're going to play? Maybe a little bit of time. It might just take you a little bit longer to get to the goal at the end of the whatever it is you're setting out to do. But so what? 
getting, I mean, you know, I mean, if it's, if, um, unless, of course, it's a matter of, you know, someone's dying and you time is of the essence, then, yeah, of course, you don't play then. But in a situation that's not life and death, if it takes you just a little bit longer to get there because you're investing in playing a little and, and being open to following this avenue or going down that path that wasn't immediately part of the, the plan, so what? Maybe you learn something really tremendous doing that. And there's an easy way to do things and there's a hard way to do things. And sometimes people feel or they've bought into the structure that unless something is difficult or serious, it doesn't have as much value. If people, people who know me would probably categorize me as a playful person, as they get to know me better, they also realize that I'm very responsible and focused and conscientious and goal-driven. Mm -hmm. The difference is that if I take all those things like being focused and conscientious and responsible and goal-driven and wrap it up in playfulness, then the experience is much more fulfilling and satisfying for me and for other people. Right. The whole no pain, no gain, if it hasn't hurt you didn't deserve it. If you didn't have to work for it, you don't deserve it. I don't buy into that that is the only way to get anything done or to be productive or to have accomplished. It's like if, if this really didn't make you suffer, then you didn't really accomplish anything. Well, that's just really masochistic. I'm sorry. I, I don't think that you have to suffer in order to feel that you have accomplished something or that what you have, that what you have accomplished has value. I think there's a link between playing and learning. Children play naturally. So do animals. And that's how they learn. That's how they learn how to navigate through life. So I'd like to believe that if we can take that play vibration and apply it to a learning situation or a molding situation, it's going to feel very natural to a person. And, and I can only see benefits coming from that. I don't think you lose anything with play. I think you only gain when play is allowed to come through or to come out. Because let's say you have a really, even if you have a really tight deadline and so everybody has to work late and you're all trying to just buckle down and get this thing done, you know, before tomorrow morning. Well, if you allow for just a little bit of time to take a break or you introduce some way of doing it that's a little more fun, like even though we're all doing the work, we turn on music and we dance around at our desks even while we're actually doing the work, suddenly it doesn't feel as if it was so much of a suffering and a chore versus it's like, yay, we got the job done and it was actually less painful and a little more enjoyable because we introduced a play element. I also think play means that you bring in a willingness to be more open to what you're doing, to the process, and where it wants to lead to, rather than simply getting stuck in where you think it should be going, because you close off or shut down to things that could be very productive. Uh, you know, like it makes me think in science, if you're doing an experiment and you're only doing something to try to force what you think should be the outcome, you may miss out on a whole new amazing discovery because you simply went in and said, let me just try this. Let me just play with this. I have a hypothesis of where I think this may go, but now I'm going to play with this experiment 
and see what happens, what comes out of it. So there's something that you said, I see I want to touch on and see if we can explore it a little bit further. Openness. That when we were talking earlier, there was the idea that you can play with things in many different ways. You can play with things in your mind space. You can play with things in your mind. You can play with things in your heart. You can play with things with your body. You can play with things almost like musically, right? Lyrically. Um, anybody have thoughts on where do you play? Do you play in your in your gut? Do you play in your in your hands? Do you play in your in your in your head? I mean, I play in my head a lot. I think a lot of what I do as I'm exploring reality, I'm playing with ideas and concepts and linking them up together in different ways in my head. And I think that's a, there's a lot of play in that because it's not structured and disciplined all the time. It's seeking patterns and seeking harmonies and resonances and structures, but it's definitely not according to some rigid process. So where, where do you guys play? Many, many times play for me involves physical, what I'm doing with my hands, um, whether I'm crafting, whether I'm um, doing something with ceramics, whether goofing around with the puppies, that sort of thing. A lot of my play is expressed physically through my hands. Yeah, when you're through, painting. Or right. So something, another aspect of play for me that isn't purely an external approach, I would say it's heart. When I'm playing that's in doing something that doesn't look like it's play, it looks like it's work, I'm calm and happy and lost inside myself, lost inside my my heart space. Heart. Mm -hmm. Yes. I have no idea how much time has gone by. I don't care how much time has gone by. I don't really care if I've gotten hungry or not gotten hungry. Inside, my heart space is, is satisfied. And so I'm happy. And I think that that, for me, is one of the things where you can tell if you've entered into play space, regardless of whether you're working on a goal-oriented kind of thing or just playing, is one, you become unaware of time, and two, you become almost, it's kind of like losing a sense of what you're doing because you're just kind of in it and doing it. Um, you know, it's like a, a person who's painting will often say, you know, they lost track of time and they weren't even aware of what they were painting until they were done or at a certain point and then they step back and go, oh my gosh, look at what has come out of me. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think that's one of the areas I think that I play in my head a lot because I love to bat around different ideas and, oh, what about this and think really philosophical questions, you know, but I think that's just, you know, play because there some ways there's I'm not stuck on is there a right or wrong answer or conclusion versus let me just play with this and see where it takes my thought process at this moment. I also play through creativity. You know, I think creativity, like if I'm working on, say, putting a document together mm -hmm. for something, which is a job, however, I will sit there and I will start playing with fonts or if I write something, I'll, I'll write a sentence and then, well, what if I use these words? Well, what if I say it this way? And to me, I'm just playing with what I'm doing, but still getting the job done. But there's, but it's play because it's a sense of I'm not stuck in a, a rigid structure or limitation or restriction of how I think it should be done. I'm allowing it to breathe and say, try it this way, try it this way. Because I may think, oh, you know, this would be perfect in this font. 
And then I start playing with fonts, and I discover a font that I've either never used or hadn't used in a long time. And I, oh, my God, no, this is way better. I <laughs> it in this font. And I never would have done that or discovered that, mm-hmm. which may be a part of play is discovery. I, I would have never discovered that if I hadn't allowed myself to just play with it for a little while. Now, I can't say, you know, oh, it's done by the end of the day, so I can't take three days to play with fonts and find something that might work. I still have to understand that, that there's something within which I'm working, but it doesn't mean I have to abandon all play. Let's say you're you're working on something that has a deadline or you're working on a goal. Do you have to establish that there's some part of your budget that is allocated to play, or do you just sort of slip play in and see how it enhances your productivity so you really don't need to budget for play? I know when I'm working on something, I make a conscious effort to bring a playful vibration into whatever I'm doing simply because it's more enjoyable and fulfilling and satisfying for me. So when I'm working on a project or if I'm reorganizing a closet or I'm sending a gift to someone, my mindset is always, how can I play with this? How can I make this more fun? So if I was going to describe play in my day, it would be like having a box and the playfulness is the beautiful wrapping paper and the bow that you choose to put around it. Mm-hmm. You're still going to have the box, and the box is your focus and whatever else or the task at hand. But why not have that wonderful involvement of the senses, which to me, when you were asking where do you react when you play, is is where I go because it's a very sensual experience. The more of my being that I can bring into the equation the more fulfilling my play is. To me, play is sacred. It's a sacred gift. You know, I work with the tarot, and one one example I can give sometimes that I use, not just to break myself out of and into maybe more playful space, but also sometimes with a client to bring them into a... It just takes them out of the normal space that they're in, is most people, like if I give them the deck, they think if I say to shuffle or move the cards around, they shuffle them like if you're playing a card game and you know or whatever and do the shuffling. And what I'll have them do instead is I'll say finger paint with the cards, which means just put them down on the table and just start smooshing them around. And you don't even put them back into a pile. And then when we're drawing the cards, I just have them start pulling cards and laying them in my hand rather than it being handing a deck perfectly stacked back to me that I then take one after the other off the top of the deck. So you can bring play into anything. And I don't think you would necessarily budget for it because then suddenly it becomes a task and it's like, oh, I didn't you know, I didn't do 27 minutes of play <laughs> within this project. Simply allow for it to come in when needed. So if I'm if I've written what needs to be written and now I have, oh, you know what, I got this done about 10 minutes earlier than I thought I would, let me play with some fonts. And so I just kind of slip it in there when there's an opportunity in order, and, and then I may discover something, you know, completely unexpected because I allowed that to happen rather than shutting it down or, or just saying, well, play doesn't really have a part in this kind of a process. So there's two things that I'm reflecting on. One is structure and whether structure is an, an inhibitor to play and what role structure has in inhibiting play and whether you want to let go of structure a little bit when you play. And the other is the the vibration of play. And I think, you know, maybe Mildred Lynn, is there a little bit more that you can say about what that vibration feels like compared, and compare it to something else? 
Sure. When I'm in the vibration of play, I feel ultimately alive and aware and in tune and connected. That's how I feel with play. When I'm not play, in, in, a, in a playful mode or I'm approaching things not from a playful perspective, I feel less alive. So your light like, is dimmer. My light is dimmer. There's less color and less enjoyment and satisfaction and engagement. So even if you're working on something intensely? Oh, definitely. It, I need to play more. <laughs> well, perhaps it feels heavier. It and does, so yeah. you bring that in and it allows it to feel just a little bit lighter. And so. the other part, too, as a human being, I very much value play. I value play. I value love. I value joy. I value play. I value different things. I would put them in the same vibrational category. So love, joy, and play seem to be like the high vibrations They're for dancing you. with each other. Okay. And I, I would like to add one other thing, and this is for our listeners. Pay attention to how many times over the week or over a day or whatever makes sense to you, you use the word play or you use the word work. It's common to say, oh, give me that report. Let me play with it a little while. Or, or you may notice yourself saying, well, let me play with that. And that's also a good indicator of if you're playing or if you're not playing or where you put play. And I guess maybe uh, encouraging uh, our listeners to find that feeling of lightness that that in the moments when they are playing, they can say, oh, that's what that feels like, and then seek to replicate that feeling or find that place when they're doing other things. Excellent advice. Okay, well, I think that's about all the time we have today. Um, because we are on an agenda and a schedule, after all. Well, we have to go play. <laughs> and, John, if, if you don't want people to take you so seriously, you have to stop wearing hats. That's all I have. <laughs> and, John, the earrings have to go, too. <laughs> don't you say anything. <laughs> uh, no, we're not saying that Dev and John exchange clothes. We're not saying that. <laughs> All right, well, thanks for joining us uh, this week. Find us on the web. If you want to join the discussion, go to our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Firefly Willows, and uh, we'll see you next time. Thanks yeah. to all of my co-hosts. Yeah. Great Thank job, welcome. John. Thanks. Thank Bye. you. Well, that's it for our roundtable for this week. Many thanks to this week's moderator, John Carousella and participants Mildred Lynn McDonald, Deb Carousella, and Hi-C Lutmers. We hope you found this roundtable discussion engaging and thought-provoking. If you would like to join the conversation, visit facebook.com slash fireflywillows and add your comment under this week's roundtable post. Stay tuned. We're back, and this is Convergence. I'm your host, John Carousella. So it's August. This is a... This, this is a time of year that for me is very special. It's full of a, a kind of deep emotion. And it comes from, from, from my experience as a little kid. When I was young, growing up in upstate New York, the summer was a magical time. It is for most kids. I loved school, and I loved doing well in my schoolwork, and getting the right answers in class. But I loved the summer, too. We lived out in the country. 
pretty far out in the country, out on a hill. And my, my nearest neighbors really were far away. It was over a mile to my best buddy's house. So it's a good thing we had a big family. Uh, my brothers and sisters and I played a lot together. Sometimes it was hide-and-seek. Sometimes it was tag. Sometimes it was hot beans and butter, where somebody would hide a stick and whoever found it first would give the holler, grab the stick, and chase everybody else around until they got to home base. Then there were those huge, noisy, flying grasshoppers that would buzz past your face or land in your hair or just look clumsy as they careened to a landing on a stalk of Queen Anne's Lace or Goldenrod. What was special about summer became even more special in August. Somehow, there was a special color to the light. There was a special richness to the heat, a special weight to the midday air, and a special scent on the cool evening breezes. Every day was a luxury. Playing in the sprinkler or going to the pool when the air was thick with humidity. Watching the thunderstorms roll across the Mohawk Valley from our vantage point on the hill. And this special quality of August was most powerful and remains most poignantly in my memory in that special time after our evening meal. We little kids would go outside and play in the waning heat with the sounds of kitchen cleanup and murmured indoor conversation as our musical score. I loved going up to the little swing set at the edge of our property. I remember helping my dad put it up. Little hands fumbling with nuts and bolts and handing them to my dad as he put the thing together trying to dig holes in that really difficult, challenging clay shale ground where we lived to put in cement and finally putting the thing up and testing it out and realizing it really wasn't very securely in the ground after all and hearing its first melodic squeaks. And on that swing swinging as high as I could with my back to the setting sun, I would see an amazing tapestry of greens in the trees, yellows and ochres in the grasses, tinges of orange and pink splashed across the white fluffy clouds, and of course, the rhythmic stretching and shrinking of my swinging shadow on the ground, back and forth, back and forth. As the sun approached the horizon, the light always shifted. The colors bloomed, and the shadows got longer and longer. Indelible in my mind and body, I've come to call this time the long shadows of August. Nothing but the smell of the drying hayfield, the swoosh of the air across my face and bare legs, the rhythmic squeaking of the swing set, and the mystical lightness of my body moving through the air. 
Evening in June and July, when the sun is still high and didn't set until nine, was bright. I was often put to bed before sunset. Evenings in September, with the oncoming chill of autumn, had their own unique charm. But by then, school had started, so there was less time for frolicking. But August, after dinner, playing on the swings, and those long, long shadows in the golden sunlight... We'll be right back. Firefly Willows L.I.V.E. is proud to support Canine Paw Print Rescue, a new animal rescue group located in Pittsburgh, California. Canine Paw Print volunteers are experienced, dedicated, well-known, and loving. Hard-working, too. Canine Paw Print Rescue exists to rescue, rehabilitate, and ultimately to rehome abandoned, stray, and neglected animals from shelter situations. They work closely with shelters, other rescues, and the community to improve the lives of animals in need. Find them at caninepawprintrescue.org, on Facebook at facebook.com slash caninepawprintrescue, or call 925-695-7297 for more information. Donations to support the animals may be made via PayPal to caninepawprintrescue at gmail.com. This tip of the week from Canine Paw Print Rescue. There are many beneficial reasons to spay or neuter your pet, including the health of the animal. Unspayed females are prone to pyometra, a bacterial infection of the uterus which is fatal to many animals every year. Each heat cycle raises the chances of developing this painful disease. Males can develop prostate and testicular cancer. A male dog can detect a female dog in heat from about a mile away which can lead to an unaltered male running away and becoming the victim of a car. Spaying and neutering do not cause your dog to gain weight and may help calm down that hyperactive puppy. Did you know 80% of dogs hit by cars are unaltered males? 90% of unaltered male dogs develop prostate problems. Unaltered dogs are much more likely to bite. Neutered animals are happier, healthier, and live longer. Welcome back. This is Convergence, and I'm your host, John Carousella. With me this morning is Annette Wagner. Annette is a visionary artist, creativity teacher, and coach. Creativity is her passion. She facilitates the creative process in others by developing and delivering intentional creativity classes. Annette has been coaching and mentoring clients for over 12 years in going around, over, and under issues to help transform them. And I am hoping to have a conversation with Annette about play and about creativity. And I've had the wonderful opportunity to work with Annette in her creative expressions classes and have found them very, uh, very intriguing and fulfilling. So given that I'm not exactly the best player, uh, I, I seem to have dropped a gene or it's gone dormant or something. I am going to ask Annette to help me and help you find your way into the roots of play. So welcome, Annette. Thank you, John. I'm very happy to be here today. It's going to be fun, right? <laughs> <laughs> it will be fun and creative. <laughs> All right. So 
one of the things that is seems to be a challenge for me is to is to find myself in the place of play to deliberately move myself into the place of play and i imagine that that's something that given the work you do that you have to do so how do you do that how do you get your clients into the place of play so there are many techniques i use the most important one is to recognize where people are coming from in the culture that we live in today. And as you said, you, I love the comment that you made about you think maybe you don't have a gene because I hear from so many people out there that they don't have a creative bone in their body. Mm. And it's a very common complaint, but the reality is is that's simply not true. Maybe it's like the gene is not turned on. Well, and I think actually what happens is in childhood is we are very much connected to this gene and there's things that happen, whether it's how you're raised or the experiences that you've had, that teach us to turn or tune down or disconnect from the channel that connects us to our innate creativity. Because every human being is creative. That's how we move through life. We couldn't actually function in life if we didn't have some level of creativity moving us forward. But the way that connection um, say forms or is present when we're adults is many times not a full open channel. And that's where I work with people to move them into that. And part of what I do is I create containers for opportunity. I literally, both physically, emotionally, spiritually, you name it, I think about when I'm working with someone, what kind of container needs to be created that I can then take that person and move them into a place where they can connect with that innate creativity inside of themselves and let it come out so that they can play. Okay, so I want to... Hmm, there's two directions I want to go at once. <laughs> <laughs> First is you, are ta you talk about creativity, mm -hmm. but I talked about play. So I want to understand, are, are they the same thing? And if they're not the same thing, how do they relate to one another? Because I really... Because I feel like I can be creative often, mm -hmm. but I don't feel like I'm playing often. And I maybe I'm just not seeing something about the nature of creativity and play. The way I view what you're talking about is creativity is the innate energy we have inside of ourselves to create from ourselves. Play happens when you are in connection with that creativity. And... You're in connection to the creativity, the channel is open, and there's an element of trust that comes in when you're in connection with that creativity. Trust that you can be creative, trust that it's okay to be creative, trust that, that whatever's going to happen is perfectly fine. That trust isn't always present when we connect to our creativity in sort of, I will say, today's culture as a way of saying, like wherever we're at, what I find for many people is where they're at right now in their life they've constrained the channel of creativity. So to me, creativity and play are inherently and directly connected. When you have a full operational channel into your innate creativity and you trust what's going to come out of that and your intuition and your right brain and your left brain are completely working together in that, play just naturally happens. Well, that's very interesting. Okay, so this is this is actually really helpful. There's... There's an aspect of creativity that it can be present in the absence of play, mm -hmm. but in trusting that the output of the creative process is going to be okay. 
that opens the channel to play? Yes. So, so many times I have had um, clients and students who've come to me and told me about an experience when they were a child, and I've had one of these myself. Um, you may have or may not, but many people have had an experience when they were a child where someone criticized or invalidated or told them what they were doing was stupid or ugly or not worth it. I remember painting a picture of a California poppy and having a teacher who I didn't get along with who came by and just made this comment that completely invalidated all the efforts I put into this piece of artwork. And I thought I'd actually done a pretty darn good job of drawing. It was in fourth grade, and I drew a California poppy because that's what you do with California history, you know, when you're in fourth grade. And I never drew it. I didn't draw another flower for several years. And I've heard that story mirrored so many times, but yet I continue to be creative. I have 21 patents. I worked in high tech for many years. Mm. I'm a highly creative person, but I constrained the channel, and there were areas I wouldn't go because I had gotten this message somehow that what I was creating was not good enough, and I closed the channel down. It never entirely goes away. And that, that's something that I, have, I am very much believe. It never entirely goes away. So I want to just spend a little bit more time on this connection between creativity and play because I feel like I feel like there's something important that I want to soak in for another minute so that I can really understand it. The channel of creativity is never goes away. No. But play can go away. Yes. Our enjoyment of how to say our the joy that creating can bring us. Creativity is essential to who we are as human beings. It's essential to how we move through life. It's essential to happiness and joy. But what happens is we shut the channel down enough that it doesn't sustain us. It doesn't bring us joy. What inspiration it brings, we don't recognize. We don't acknowledge. And yet we can still access it because we have to. In order to live our lives, we have to have some ability to access it. But we shut it down to a point where it no longer is sustaining us in the way that it really could. It's not bringing us joy. It's not bringing us inspiration or we're not recognizing. So what happens? Why do those things matter? I know that seems like an odd question, but in terms of being a fully realized, fully accessing and exercising your gifts, Mm -hmm. why does play matter? Why does creativity matter? And why does the the channel being open enough to, to identify and appreciate the joy and fulfillment that comes from it matter? So I talk about the joy and the inspiration and the other things that it brings you, but the reason it really matters is because it makes us whole people. This is where I talk a little bit about right brain and left brain. In the culture, in Western culture today, we are a highly analytical culture that operates from the mind. Yet, if we were going to go out and invent a mouse or invent an iPad or invent something else out in high tech, Inherently, our intuitive side comes into play because that's where invention comes from. That's where inspiration comes from. That's where the connections are made that then the mind can go off and implement in order to create the really cool thing that we're going to ship as a product. They have to both be present, but when we do not acknowledge that intuitive, inventive, inspirational side, we're not living to our full capacity as humans. We're not taking advantage of all we can truly be as people. So something dawns on me. It's, you say, you talk about the joy and the, and the, uh, and the fulfillment and stuff like that. And it's maybe that 
it's the experience of wholeness that actually creates the joy. Yes. It's indeed. not the joy. The joy is not is not the goal. The joy is the reward for the being whole. The joy is the reward for being whole. Yes. That's totally cool. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> That's a really cool observation and a really cool and important kind of awareness that it's joy joy is a is an artifact of wholeness. It's not a goal in and of itself. No, it's something that tells you that you're Approaching wholeness. Well, or that you're in a state where you... you I, I sometimes see wholeness as something... See, I don't subscribe to the theory that we live to goals. Mm-hmm. I subscribe to a theory that I walk a path. And there are times I am more whole and times I come apart and times I come back together because we are all, always moving through the cycle of life and through transformation. There is always something birthing, something dying, something regenerating and rotting and composting and coming back to life. And that's the piece of the cycle of life that people do not in our culture understand or embrace many times. Yet that's the place where things come from. That's where things manifest from. That's where things grow from. I have to tell you, Annette, I I almost can't even listen right now because of the profundity of what you just led me to. <laughs> uh, I am so happy to have had you here sharing this information with me because it is a huge revelation to me. And here you thought that you didn't have a gene that would allow you to do these things. <laughs> because I was looking at it the wrong way. See, was it the wrong way? Well, or? it's the pursuit of play. Mm-hmm. The pursuit of of that thing that apparently I'm not so good at. I don't know about if you are or you aren't, John. Well, no, I, and of course I don't. It's allegedly, right? Let's just say it that way. <laughs> uh, turns out is the wrong goal. Well, it doesn't need to be a goal, or is it a state well, of being? Well, okay, either way, from where I am to, you know, like how do you bring people to the place of play, you know, reflecting back on that on that earlier question, it's... For me, as the as the metaphysicist kind of guy, the guy who's trying to trying to sort all this stuff out and place it in its in its relevant context and its in its right relation to everything else, what I just learned was that it isn't about play; it's about wholeness, and play is is correlated closely to the experience of wholeness, and the joy that you get from play is an indication of the experience of wholeness. And so it's nurturing wholeness, really. As a, it, What I was trying to figure out was how do you nurture play and why does it matter, right? And I, I think that the key is that play doesn't matter on its own. It's an indication and an exercise in experiencing wholeness, which really matters. So, and now this is all for me, right? I mean, right. this is my context, which is, you know, trying to fit all this together and, and find purpose in and value in play. And, and now I know. Well, so <laughs> let me add a little piece, another little piece into the mix. One of the reasons it's so critical to, to integrate play and open that channel of creativity so fully is it brings all the parts of us together into this wholeness, Right. There's something else that happens when that integration takes place, is there is a switching 
of things inside of you that's going to happen, which is instead of the mind leading, the heart will begin to lead and the mind will step into a more appropriate and balanced relationship with the heart, whereas the mind supports the heart. This is a much more organic way of living. It is not an analytical or a logical way of living. And so for when you, and I know people I've coached through this and I've moved through this, is when you do this, it will actually move you to a place where you almost feel like you're starting to go crazy because you start to live a life where things do not operate or happen in the same kind of time flow that we're logically used to. What does that mean? No, they don't happen in the same kind of time flow. So, for example, sometimes I'll paint a painting and I don't know where the image is coming from. And three weeks later, something will happen in my life and I'll go, oh, it was opening the doorway for that to happen. Or something will happen and I'll paint a, a painting and things or I'll have a conversation with someone like you and things will happen that seem like they're not in sequence but they're all very much more connected. And they're, in fact, more important in, in the way they're connected. Then, then you would have perhaps deliberately tried to craft. Right. You could never have crafted something like that. A pattern, it's like a pattern that falls into place in your life, and it doesn't happen logically. It happens like pieces of a weaving kind of coming into focus. Yeah. And then when they come together, it's like this whole new pattern is in your life, and it's a very different way of living. And you'll find yourself lessening the grasp that you have on living your life by a clock and starting to step back. Uh, terrifying, isn't it? It is absolutely terrifying when it begins to happen because as somebody who lived in high tech and there were many times I asked my coach and mentor, I would call on the phone and say, okay, am I going like totally crazy here? And he would laugh and he'd say, you're in the right place. When you start to ask me you're crazy, I know you're moving into the right space. <laughs> It wasn't always comforting to hear this as an answer. <laughs> right, right. So you get to the point where you're experiencing a nonlinear time confluence of activities that support you and bring deeper meaning. It, it's also a sign that your right and your left brain are beginning to work in concert with each other. So one of the things that Western culture, unfortunately, in the way in which it educates children and and I don't mean to continually diss Western culture because I think there's many things that are very good about it, but the way our educational system works is it does heavily rely on logic. And there are more and more schools that are bringing in, you know, dance and drama and art and other things and music that, that bring in the other aspect. And what we can see and what I can see in my students is when I start to move into a container of opportunity and I get them to activate both the right and the left brain, things start to happen that they never expected. And the content of what people do when I work with them comes from them. It doesn't come from me. It comes from inside of them, and they create amazing things. And it's unexpected for them as well. Completely unexpected for them in many cases, and completely meaningful for them at very deep levels that they don't expect. And that's because I believe part of it is because our right and our left brain get activated, they start moving in concert together because we're using our mind differently, we're bringing in our heart differently, and we're acknowledging the role of intuition and heart and creativity and play and, how to say, embracing it. And by doing that and trusting at the same time, there's something else that starts to happen and the doorway between the two sides of our brains opens up and, as I say, anything can happen. And so, and so that happens that is stimulated by or or cultivated by by what by 
creative exercises? Or? Yes. So part of the, the many of the exercises that I, I do with people have a combination of, um, I usually start with some kind of ritual to set space. And as I said, I also pay a lot of attention to physically setting up space. Because once you set a container up, you want the container solid enough that anything can happen within it. And then once you set space, I will do things like a red thread ceremony. I'll do active imagination, which I can speak a little bit more about later. I'll do a variety of things like that. And I'll also bring in painting and writing, images and words, where I'm moving people into both of those domains and I'm activating both the right and the left side of their brain. And as I'm doing that, and I'm well, moving... That's why, that's why you have writing in the creative expression classes, where, where you actually you put the words on on the diagram or in the in the art. So when we do a sumi e drawing and we're connecting with the seashell that's on the table, and I ask you to draw the essence of it, and then I ask you to just put whatever words are in your mind, I'm activating both in the right, left, mm. and the left side of your brain. Yeah, and it moves you into a different space, and it can move you into a different space, and you don't even realize that I'm moving you into a different space, which is good. Because right, because then you're not thinking about it. You're not thinking about it. Your intellect is not trying to drive you. Your logic is not there. And you're, you're actually using more of your capacity of being human as you move into that space. So that's a very important piece of the work that I do is to activate that and move somebody into a space where they can create from a place inside of themselves that they may not have ever created from. Okay, so, so maybe now is a good time to do an exercise? Yes. Let's take a short break. And then we'll come back and do an exercise. We'll be right back. We hope you're enjoying this broadcast of Firefly Willows L-I-V-E on Blog Talk Radio. For information on Firefly Willows, please explore our website, fireflywillows.com, or like us on Facebook. Welcome back. This is Convergence, and my guest this morning is Annette Wagner. Okay, what were we talking about? We were going to do an exercise. We were indeed going to do an exercise. But on the break, we talked a little bit about your art show in San Francisco and how it led to this exercise or something? Yes. I am. I also have an art show up at the Ah Gallery, A-W-E, San Francisco. It's part of her church. It will be there um, through... The 26th of July. It's 24 paintings, some of them very new in the show. Wait, 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 wait. 26th of July? T- 26th of August. Sorry about that. 26th of July was my birthday. Oh, uh, happy birthday. Thank you. As part of the events leading up to the opening of the show, and also as a lead up to a workshop that I'm teaching there on the 25th of August, I was invited to a sneak preview on the Friday night before the reception started with a group of women who meet once a month at the um, church. And the Reverend Stacy Bourne, who runs the gallery and the church, asked me if I would just do a quick little exercise with them. So I did this exercise I call a possibility card. And so in front of us, between John and I, we have some little squares or rectangles of watercolor paper and some pencils. Right. And what I'm going to ask you to do is a tiny bit of active imagination and we're going to this open. Is hurt. Yes. <laughs> Trust, John. <Okay. laughs> you put the pen down. <laughs> <laughs> 
we're going to just do a little bit of active imagination and then we're going to op- and we're going to open the door for a possibility to come in. Something okay. that looks like a thought that you've never thought before. So if you're out there in the audience, you can follow along by get, having a little piece of paper and a pencil ready, but just leave them in front of you for the moment. And I want you to close your eyes and ground your feet onto the floor. Feel your hands perhaps resting in your lap. Maybe you're sitting and you can feel your body leaning against the chair. Take a deep breath in. Let it out. Release any tension. And as you take the next breath in, feel this golden light starting to come down and settle around you, on your shoulders, on the top of your head, just like a soft, glowing, energetic blanket all around you. And as it settles down around you, visualize yourself moving into your heart, that your heart is like a golden door. And as you stand in front of the door, it may have a message written on it. And you can look and see what kind of material the door is made of. And what we're going to do is we're going to open the door and ask three times, as we do in the shamanic tradition, ask for a possibility, the gift of a possibility, perhaps a thought we have never thought before, perhaps a message from our muse. So I want you to reach out to the door. Perhaps it opens in front of you. Perhaps you turn the knob. And as you open the door, there is a message waiting for you. And you ask to be given a gift. And you take that message and you put it inside of your heart and tuck it inside. And you thank whoever it was who gave you the message. And it might just be a couple words, perhaps a phrase. And you put it inside yourself and you thank them. And maybe you close the door and you bring your awareness back inside of your body, your hands on your lap, your feet on the floor, your body sitting, perhaps laying. And you take a deep breath and come back into this room. Now, I want you to choose a color pencil. Any of them. Doesn't matter which one. And write or draw the message that you received onto the paper in front of you. Mm -hmm. If there were any images that came, You might just sketch them along the side. So those of you out listening, take just a moment to write and maybe sketch with a color pencil or two what came to you. So I'm sketching 
Were there words that came to you? Uh, well, not exactly. I got this image of the door being... It's so funny, because when you first started, uh, as, I, as I closed my eyes, the first thing that happened was above my head appeared a gold pocket watch hanging on a chain with a white white face and black numbers. You know, and as you went forward, and I thought, is that the door to my heart? Is that my heart? What What is that, right? And it turns out that that was not, I don't think that was my heart. I think that was my head, right? Which might be an image you want to include. So, but, so I actually actively set that aside and said, okay, that's a contrast image. And I said, okay, so let's just follow the meditation and go into my heart and so on. And I got this image of this, this other world, fairy world, big tree with a, with a door in it, right? And the door opened and it was pitch black inside. And there really wasn't anybody there until you said, you know, you might thank the person if there was somebody who handed you the message. And there really wasn't anybody there and there really wasn't any message spoken or anything like that other than this is the void and you can be still here and you can come anytime you want. And there's your message. Right. So I think that's... So right. I, I think it's important to write down what we get. Sometimes we don't understand fully. And this is that, that nonlinear time sequence is sometimes I'll do something like this and I'll get back an image and a message and it will, I don't have a clue what it means. And I'll do it and I'll, I also happen to be an altarista, so I have altars all over my house. So I'll set it on my altar and I'll just, it's like a ingredient in the, the stew pot in the back of my mind is I set it on the altar and it continues to do whatever it's going to do to manifest into my life. And as the days go by, other pieces of the weave will come into focus and I'll go, oh, that's what it was talking about. That's what the message was about. Hmm. So when I did the exercise with the women up at the um, in the gallery, what I got was turning point. Turning point. Yes. And, and what I had actually, and I won't do it here simply because we, it will take a bit longer. Well, what I had the women do was we... We did the exercise we just did with you where we came up with a possibility. Then I had them, after they'd they'd drawn and they had written it, was I had them go back to the same place that we had been. And I had them in their, if you will, spirit self that that was in that act of imagination, had them physically move themselves somehow to either turn, twist, dance, walk, jump, fly, whatever came to them as a kind of movement that made sense, and to turn what they had gotten to see what it was going to manifest into so that we took it another step further. Well, why the turning? Because it's transformation. Ah, okay. So it's, it's, it's to, to physically, in a way, even though we weren't physically doing it in our literal bodies in sort of this reality, it was when you do that, you're actually asking people to shift their energies. It's a way of getting them to move. Right. It's some kind of movement, it's some kind of engagement that changes something, basically. Exactly. And then what we were doing was we were going deeper with what we had gotten. Like some people had gotten a word like encounter or turning point like I had gotten or something else. And so what I was doing was asking them to go deeper with what they had gotten, 
what was it that this was, you know, was there something that was meant to manifest? I mean, I didn't even actually give them a lot of direction because they were already in this state where they were in connection with their creativity, where they were trusting, where the doorway had already opened, and all I asked them to do was go deeper. And then on the back side of the card, they came back and, and wrote and draw what they had received. On the second, right. And many of them were quite surprised by what they came up with. And it was it was like a a key that unlocked something. Like, oh, that's what this is about. And like one woman had gotten originality and she wasn't sure why she had gotten it. And she's an artist who, when she went deeper, she realized it was about taking her art in a completely different direction. And she was feeling like she needed help to do that. Mm. And she just, she was like, oh, that's what this is about. So you never know what's going to come back. Sometimes you get something that's, you know, in alignment like that. Sometimes you get something that's completely different. Mm. Well, that was a cool exercise. Well, thank you. That's just a little mini example of some of the things that I do with my students and clients. One of the things I might suggest we talk about next, if we have time to do so, is the muse and the critic. Which do you want to talk about first? Or do they, do they come together? They come together. Oh, it's a package deal. <laughs> <laughs> well, and the reason I think it would be a good time to talk about them now is because we've done this exercise. Hmm. And what happens many times if we don't understand the role of the muse and the critic is that we start to pick it apart. Because when we come back to this reality and we've moved out of that state where we were in full connection with our creativity, we come back and we look at this and we go, oh, I can't draw. And what, that doesn't look like a tree. And oh, what, what did I, those words are silly. And, I, you know, I didn't even use English, you know. And we just, that whole part of our brain starts to engage that critic voice. And, and the question is, who is the critic and what is the role of the critic? Many times we hear people say that um, we need to silence the voice, its voices inside of our head, that that's the voice of the critic, we need to ignore it, we need to silence it. And one of the lessons I learned from my teacher, Shiloh Sophia McLeod, who spent many years really researching this and investigating it, working with people, is that is the wrong approach. And I very rarely use the word wrong, but in this case I do. The critic is desperately important to connecting to our creativity because the critic is the other face of the muse. What happens when we're a child is the muse and the critic are both alive inside of a child. A normal, healthy child, when you watch them engaging with any kind of creativity, whether it's dress up or drawing or any kind of crazy thing that kids do, and we all know they do enormously crazy things, both of those things are in operation. And the critic is the protector. The critic is the thing that helps children understand the difference between when an action is going to be a, a action that leads in a good direction, if shall we say, or a a uh, positive direction or a negative direction. It helps them to understand about judgment, hmm. and it protects them. Hmm. And the reason that the critic is important is because the muse is in full operation, and the muse is about invention and creation and play and Limitlessness, kind of. And you need those two things. Hmm. They're like a sense inside of you, and they, they balance each other out. They keep each other in a balance, and they protect the child while the muse enables the child to go off and play and explore. And what happens as we move through life is the muse gets shut down. This is the shutting down of that channel of creativity so that we're not fully in connection with it. And people have all kinds of strange relationships with the muse. I mean, we read about poets who, who think, you know, the muse is this awful thing that sends him poetry, right? But back in, I forget if it was Blake or someone new. Many poets and artists have talked about the role of the muse. But what we don't talk about is how these two things actually play together well and the way to actually bring them into balance is to bring your muse back to full life. 
what happens in the, in the work that I do with intentional creativity is we are in deliberately, and in many times I will do painting classes where we deliberately engage with bringing our muse out, is painting pictures of our muse, having tea with our muse, interviewing our muse, writing stories about our muse, to bring her back out. And what I found personally, and other people have found as well, is the more we work with this concept of bringing her into our lives and awakening her, the quieter the voice of the critic becomes. And the critic starts to move into a place of balance. So is the muse feminine and the critic masculine? It manifests differently for everyone. Historically in our culture, the muse has always been thought about as being feminine and being attached to the right side of the brain and and the dark and inspiration and invention. That's more of a Western culture type of manifestation. I can't I'm sitting here cataloging through my brain if I can think of whether how she's represented in other cultures. And I think many cultures do represent her as female. But I wouldn't be at all surprised if there are people who see the muse as male and the critic as female or vice versa. I think Mm. it's really something that's very personal. But there there is a critic and there is a muse, however they manifest. Mm. I've never yet run across someone who doesn't have (laughs) both. (laughs) Usually the critic very loud. Right, right. So when I work it with people, and like this exercise that we just did, in some ways we're asking the muse to give us a message. She's the one who gives us the possibility. So when you do this work, you have to also engage with this and have this context to understand the muse and the critic. So was was the watch my critic? I actually think the watch was a representation of your logic, of your brain. And it could have been the critic putting the watch up there. Right. Cause for a variety Because I was thinking, I, I was... Like, why are you wasting time on this? Well, so what was represented in the watch? Craftsmanship. Yes. Beautiful watch. Precision. Yes. Logic. Mechanical logic, right? right? And marking time. Yes. You know, tending to time. Right. Things moving in a logical, linear progression. Not a whole lot of room for play. <laughs> told you I'd call you on it, John. <laughs> well, well, that's why you're here, uh, you know. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's very interesting. The good news is it didn't seem to be reprimanding me in any way. It was just a, a watch. Like well, a reminder. Yeah, like a, yeah. I mean, it, it, I was going to say a sort of Damocles, but it didn't really, I mean, it, I guess it could have been interpreted. I could have taken it that way. You know what? It's It's interesting. It's a neutral statement that I get to interpret whichever way I want to. And... That's why I would actually suggest that you draw it as part of your possibility card. Because sometimes these images are things that we don't understand or we react to negatively, but then later we go, oh, that's a really important part of myself that still needs, is still part of me and I still need to integrate. And it's really just about bringing it into balance with other pieces of myself. Okay. That sounds good. Thanks for the therapy. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> okay. So what do people struggle with? When they when they come in and and they're looking for access to these to the to this wholeness. So many times people come into me not realizing that what they're looking for is potentially access to wholeness. They come in because they're feeling like they're blocked or they can't get focused. Um, so and depending on what they come in to talk to me about or to work with me on, I have a variety of different things I might do with them. Sometimes it's about doing an exercise with them where they can have an experience of connecting to creativity or 
of becoming less distracted and focused on what's really in resonance with where they want to go on their path. So I have a tabletop exercise I do with paper where we write down all the things on our plate and then we make separate plates of them. And we figure out which plate of things is actually in resonance with where the person wants to go. Because sometimes they're feeling blocked because they feel like they have so many things that they have to get done. I I can identify with that. Right. But it turns out that when you sit down and you really look at at which ones are really in resonance with where you really need to go, with what, what works for your heart as well as your mind, then suddenly there are plates of things that can be set aside or that can be dealt with in different ways. Mm-hmm. So there's that content, that kind of end of the continuum where I'm working with people, and then there's the kind of exercises I just did with you. Like sometimes I do vision plans with people where we actually sit down and create, if you will, a business plan from the heart, which is something that, that kind of – People get a little, look at me a little crazy sometimes when I do this, but it's literally a book. We make it out of watercolor paper and we do visioning and we do painting and we do writing, but we look at questions like, what is my calling? What is, instead of saying, what is my bio out in the world? We say, what is your legend? Instead of saying, um, who are the people I'm trying to reach? We say, who are your beloveds? And we shift the language and we shift the way we approach it and we shift the symbols associated with it so that we're engaging the right and the left and the mind and the heart and the muse and the critic. And we're reaching into that place to draw out what the person actually wants. This sounds like a really cool program. It's totally cool. I love doing vision plans with people. And I do them for everything. I do them for little projects. I do them for big business plans. I learned that from Shiloh um, many years ago, and it was just a total eye-opener because I was terrified of doing business plans. I'm not an MBA, yet I work for myself. So I was always beating myself up, my critic, right, coming in and beating myself up because I wasn't doing it right. I needed a mission and a charter and a this Mm -hmm, and a that. mm -hmm. And somebody would say, what's your strategy? And my brain would go blank. But I do a video plan, and I ask, the, and there's a, it, they're fairly directed in the sense that there is a set of questions that we ask, and each panel in the book has a particular um, focus, if you will. And I can do one of those, and the stuff that comes out will completely surprise me, and it actually sounds like it makes sense, and it connects together, and I can go out and implement it. I think this sounds really interesting. I think it's, uh, it seems like it's an opportunity to redefine and evolve or revolutionize the left brain business plan. Yes, it does. And and I've been quite amazed. I've been in, I can't even tell you how many classes. I do mentoring and coaching um, in the training classes that Shiloh teaches now. And I've watched her not only teach this, but I've watched people create them and then had the opportunity to go back and say, you know, did that work or how did that, you know, what happened? And watched women take these things out in the world and turn them into businesses. And are they doable as team sport? Oh, absolutely. Yes. The visioning and the vision book can be done one-on-one. So it's a more intimate experience and they can certainly be, I can also teach it as classes. Well, well, yes. What I'm looking for is like, can an organization experience this? Oh, yes. Yes. Right. So in fact, can... I've been asked to do something like this um, with teams like in a particular department, yeah. you know, a small team of people to say, okay, you know, this is what we need to do. What are the impediments to, to getting folks to participate in that? Same, as, same, I guess, as getting any analytical person to participate in a creativity exercise? It is. It, and sometimes, and now I haven't 
I, I will be honest and say I haven't done a lot of this in corporate, and I think there there is a question there about what an organization being open to the entire idea of intentional creativity and creativity coaching, um, although more and more of them are. Um, I've done this more in organizations where they have some background or something associated with that that allows me to have a conversation with them from that point, and they're not saying, you know, like, what do you mean i got to set an intent, <laughs> you know, intention right, when I right, do this. Right. So, but that, but I, I can see how, if you look at the landscape, a lot of the old models, the old paradigms, the old systems, are becoming increasingly unreliable and dysfunctional. Yes. And that's one of the reasons why economically we, we're struggling. We, we're struggling with growth. We're struggling with employment. We're struggling with all kinds of things. That you know we're stuck. Yes. You know ultimately our our economy is stuck and our culture is stuck. And this might be the kind of thing that... This is why I do this work in the world. Is Many times we have spirit work, we have life work, and then think of this as um, merging the two to become soul work. And my work in the world is to work with people to connect them to their own innate creativity because I believe when I do that, if I can help them heal that connection inside of themselves and they become a whole person, they're healing the connection to the people around them and out into the life on our planet yeah, and yeah. our communities and our culture. And it ripples outward. I actually had my 10 and a half year old daughter remind me of this yesterday. One of those, mommy, now remember, <laughs> <laughs> what you do impacts everyone else, which I thought was wonderful. That's why it's so important to really work with this idea of creativity and play and to really reconnect that and bring all those resources back inside of ourselves because it will, it can, has the power to revolutionize everything in our culture. And certainly if it brings us to a place of wholeness, that can't possibly be a bad thing. Hmm. And, and I also believe that when you do intentional work, this isn't, I really do work with intention with everything that I do. In all of my classes, we start with intention. If you're starting with intention and your intention is to work for the highest good of all, sometimes it can be painful, sometimes it can be glorious, but it's going to move us in a direction that I do believe is, is the, in a good direction mm-hmm. for everyone. Okay, so we're about out of time. Um, is there any, anything you want to, reflect on or anything like that. Why don't I leave you with this thought for the day, for, especially for everyone who's listening. When you wake up in the morning, before you get out of bed tomorrow morning, lay there for a second, think about the gold light around your heart, and just lay there and luxuriate for a minute and think, what is my intention for the day? And ask for one word to come to you. From your muse. From your muse. And just experiment with that one word coming to you and see how it impacts your day to start your day with intention. Fantastic. Okay, so for those of us out there who want to get in touch with you, how, what's the, what, where can we find you? So I have a website for my artwork, which is www.annettewagnerart.com. And you can also email me at info at AnnetteWagnerArt.com. And we'll have those links on the Firefly Willows L-I-V-E website for you. Okay, terrific. So thank you. Annette, I really have to thank you tremendously for, for a fantastic set of insights that have moved me personally in this very conversation. And I'm sure I've got lots of opportunities to investigate, explore, and harvest from that. So I, I want to thank you. I hope all of you out there listening have a chance to connect with and enjoy Annette's beautiful artwork and some of her 
quite amazing insights in creativity and wholeness. So thanks a lot, Annette. Thanks. Thank you. We'll be right back. Enjoying today's show? Want to share it with a friend? Or maybe you've missed one of our previous programs. Well, you can always find the archives of our past shows on fireflywillows.com slash L-I-V-E. Stop by and check out John's previous programs or shows from one of our other hosts, Mildred Lynn McDonald or Heisey Lutmers. Our live call-in shows are available too. And don't miss your chance to call in next week when John and Mildred Lynn will be available to explore your questions with the help of intuition, oracles, and animal totems. Join us. Welcome back to Convergence. I'm your host, John Carousella, and this is a special segment. So with me this morning are two very special guests, Wendy Marie. Wendy, tell us a little bit about who you are. Hmm. I started a shamanic disco, which is a conscious, ecstatic dance that allows a safe space for people to explore more of who you really are. Dropping out of judgment is a big doorway to walk through, and it's a practice. People come back weekly. So it's definitely a gathering of community. And for me, getting called into this place of community, like we were sharing earlier about really feeling the pain myself and seeing and feeling the pain of others, this lack of connection, this lack of trust, buildup of fear, and actually disabling us out of community. And I want to do an actual cultural shift, being called in to found um, a shamanic disco and club conscious and then also director of Ecstatic Dance, Silicon Valley, inspired by the Oakland Dance. Awesome. Great. And also with us this morning is Raina Satori. Raina, tell us about you. Oh, well, I'm a dancer, a performance artist, and clothing designer. And I'm somebody who has uh, been using dance as a modality for my own personal healing for the last 10 years. And I've also been a performance artist, and it's quite fitting that I would be working with Wendy, who's created a shamanic disco, because I am a shamanic cheerleader and have created uh, essentially a, a medium for levity to come through to the masses. Our motto and our credo is, if you want to be enlightened, you've got to lighten up. Mm. So I, I shamanic Sounds like a lot of work for me. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we can help you. Uh, I do that, and I also teach a form called contact improv. Contact improvisation <clears throat> is essentially... Um, well, it's a very playful form. Uh, I like to describe it as like partner dance meets Tai Chi meets wrestling. And it's a way to surrender to the here and now into the, the mystery of uh, the mystery of play. So with that in mind, I want to talk about dance, but I want to talk about dance as play. I mean, is it, is it possible that dance is not play? Well, I think... I think that there are definitely all kinds of places where dance is not play. Any stylized form, ballet or um, you know jazz, modern, ballroom dance, a lot of those forms, not everybody, but some people approach those as a profession in such a way where it becomes work and it's, it creates a large amount of suffering because there's a story that you're not doing it correctly or you're not good enough. And I would say that that's not necessarily play, but those forms can be play if if you're in a place of sort of surrendered enjoyment. Mm-hmm. That's what, what do you think, Wendy? Yeah. So I have an immediate response and experience about that. My own ownership of my experience of this dance, of this community, of this movement, of this cultural shift. You'll often hear me say, this dance thing, it ain't no joke. It's serious business. And some people will laugh when I say that, and I'm not sure if they're laughing at me or laughing with me because they get it. 
or and <laughs> other people will just be quiet and I feel like they get it. This is serious. Is anybody, anybody quiet because they don't get it? That could be <laughs> saying another thing to consider. <laughs> I don't want to consider. So, but, so don't help me not consider. But I do take it as very serious business. I'm an intense person, and I don't mean business as in monetary. I mean like this unfolding of authenticity through free-form conscious movement, this deep inward experience that people are literally cracking open, whether they're cracking open into their playfulness or cracking open into an experience of intimacy and soulfulness or whether they're cracking into just this presence of owning their own anger, their sadness, their joy, but that we we are learning to celebrate all of who we really are in a community through movement and music. Why does movement and music I mean, sometimes the why questions are a little bit harder to to answer. But why and how does movement help crack you open? So why and how, and I love that you addressed how as a different kind of question. That's that's the freebie. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So what I notice is my experience, especially in Silicon Valley, is I am constantly in straight lines, left turns, right turns, straight ahead, backwards, and I'm disabled through that kind of movement. I'm in a square box. And what this freeform movement allows me to explore places within me and outside of me that I would never explore in my daily grind of life, whether it be family responsibility or work, or but the way that we know it, the way that we've learned it, these straight lines. Even in a parking lot, I have to be very careful in Trader Joe's parking lot. I might connect with somebody I might hit somebody I might and connection becomes this place of carefulness don't get too close to me in the store or in the parking lot so this allowing of this jellyfish movement this flow it's like for me dance cracks me open because it's the first time in my day that I get to allow myself to move freely I have freedom and so for me creating a space where people can let it all go where do we do that where do we get to do that other than in the dance and have a community hold us to freely express through an embodied practice. So that's the experience that I get in cracking open. It touches me deeply where my daily routine in life doesn't allow that penetration and that that depth. Hmm. Why and how does dance crack you open? Well, dance is one of the very first things that humans did together as a form of community and prayer. Ever since the beginning of time, dance is the thing that people did to connect to the divine. So it, it's in our DNA that we move to experience an altered state. Also, you know, more modern science shows us that a lot of your, well, everything you've ever experienced in your life emotionally is stored in the soft tissues of your body. So when you move your body in, in a dancing kind of way, or even in, even it happens in yoga, Stuff comes up because the memory of it is stored in your body. Responses that you had physically to traumas when you were younger, they're still in there. And if you release that by moving, it will come up and be cleared out. It will be, it will, it will be let go of. So that would be the how, I think, because when you move the soft tissue of the body, it will release whatever stuff is hanging out in there. It could be stress, it could be trauma, it could be joy, it could be pleasure, it could be unbelievable ecstatic happiness. But it's all stuck in there. Until you move your body, it won't actually move through you. That's really cool. So there's an opportunity 
to f- break out of habituated patterns that dominate our work life. In engaging in dance, it's sort of called for to step out of the rigidity of the forms, so to speak. And in breaking out of the rigidity of the forms, we are circulating and stimulating the soft tissues of the body to, in a sense, on the one hand, you could say purge. On the other hand, you could say free the memories that are stored in the body. Yeah, um, and memories and emotions. I mean, just let's take an example of like, okay, you're in your car. Somebody cuts you off. You feel upset and angry about it, or you feel scared because you almost got into an accident. And what happens in your body? It tightens up. You're like, oh, right? Or or your kidneys tighten up because you got a scare, right? So that's going to stay there in, until you move it. So you you have to move it somehow. And And physically moving the body is a way to move it. Yeah, absolutely. At least wake it up to the, you know, it's like, it's almost like um, I'm, I'm seeing it as a, oh, what is it? Like, well, you know, I, if I may cut in, it's almost, it's like water. It's like water, okay? It's like it stagnates until you let the dam open, right? So it gives you the opportunity for the, to express the emotion that you were having. The, re- the reason why we contract physically is because we're trying to prevent ourselves from expressing an emotion that we're having. So when you uncontract, the emotion moves through, just like the stagnant water moves through, and it just moves out so that more energy can flow through you. Yeah, and, and we're water anyway, right? Right. So, so the analogy is particularly appropriate. Yeah. Yeah. So I just want to share, like, for me, what I'm experiencing in my body right now, I just have so much excitement and fire and passion around sharing this, mm. and it's, it is hard to put into words, and I so want to invite people into that courage and in any curiosity that anybody might have to come and experience being in your own body. What that's like, this body wisdom that we have that is so often shut out that we're in our head all the time, which is insane to lock out our body wisdom. And that's this part of dance is reawakening us. It can be scary. And that's the exciting part of it. It's like standing in line for a roller coaster ride. Until you ride one, you're not sure if you want to be on it or not. (laughs) But also expressing with words is a challenge. This experience within our bodies, enabling that and having a community that is on that ride with us, that we do agree we have bodies that need to be reawakened. And this allowing to have a full human experience, for me what dance has done and movement has done and doing it with community Learning to just breathe and listen deeply and have a space that's safe to do that. I don't know where else I'm safe, but to have a space that's dedicated to just listening to our body wisdom. That's what you craft with the shamanic disco. Yeah, that's what we all craft together. You know, I produce it, but that's what we all craft in a community together. That's what makes it so deep and and powerful, that allowing to have a full human experience and let whatever it is move through. So what is it that people struggle with? What what do they come in with that makes it hard for them? Or mm-hmm. conversely, what do people come in with that makes it easy for them? I have one word, judgment. <laughs> judgment for ourselves and others. That's the big disabler, not allowing. You said two things. You said judgment and not allowing. How do How do those two relate? How do you experience them as relating? My judgment disables me. 
it cuts me off from feeling because it attaches story. I feel angry. Oh, well, anger, that's not beautiful, and I'm a woman, so I need to cut that off right there. No, I'm going to find a happy place or, you know, so I dismiss myself from having a full human experience when I'm human. I have anger. I have sadness. I have joy. And to me, ecstatic means, like we call it an ecstatic dance. For me, ecstatic means depth. Hmm. And so my judgment will cut me off, whereas in the dance and movement, we allow safe space to let go of your judgment. Notice it. Dance it if you want. So judgment causes us to selectively exclude aspects of ourself, and that's disabling. I feel that, yeah. I have that experience. Mm -hmm. And I experience other people when they share their journey of embodiment, of letting go, of allowing. You know, I think that's why there's a lot of drinking in our culture, right? To shut that down. Make Mm -hmm. it stop. When we don't want it to stop, we want to notice it and allow it to move through. And as the music entices us and seduces us into our truth, to allow that tribal essence, our humanness, to be allowed so we can let go, so we can return home to that truth, which to me is ultimately a loving, accepting place. We find that place when we fully exist in our bodies. It feels like that to me when I own my full experience. When I'm when I brave the embarrassment, my judgment around I'm an angry woman and that's not beautiful and I was taught by the billboards that women show up in a different way. Hmm. And so when I disable that judgment and it no longer disables me. Cool. I think another aspect that people come in with is that they, they don't have the capacity to hold joy for very long. It's almost like a muscle, right? This this capacity to go deeper into your happiness, to go deeper into your ecstatic state, to remain open and creative is almost like a muscle. So sometimes people come in and they're so used to this sort of this of life or just like a, a mundaneness that that much ecstasy and that much joy can be a little confronting. So I think that there's sometimes a little bit of a limitation there. We don't let ourselves be that happy for that long because of judgment or because of self-talk. Well, that's I was going to ask. So that would seem to be very counterintuitive that we don't allow ourselves to be happy for that long. And why might that be? Well, I think everybody has a different story and a different reason, but um, it's always some form of self-talk, some form of, I don't deserve this. I'm not worth this you know there's so much suffering in the world how dare i be this happy for this long or you know somebody who i know is really unhappy and so therefore i can't be happy because i have to dim my light so that they won't feel bad what comes up for me is i don't have time to be happy for that long it's like you know it's okay to be happy for a little while but then we got to get back to work Mm -hmm. and that presumes something about the nature of work. Right. (laughs) So help me out with that. I know that there's a sociologist somewhere that basically really went deep into this work ethic that we have, the idea that it's more valuable and worthy as a person to be in a state of um, focused, what's, what's the word I'm looking for, efforting, focused exertion. Exertion. There's more valuable than ecstatic exertion. Somebody somewhere told us that, and we all bought it. 
And, yeah, we sure did. I did. You know, joyousness. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. I'm trying to imply that we should not try to accomplish anything ever, or be totally ineffective <laughs> all the time and just be running around yelling yeehaw. <laughs> I'm saying that you can be as effective and efficient in a joyous state. That is a huge wound in our culture. Cultural wound. Yeah. This is this is why when I speak of what we're all doing together and what we're creating and when I say gather the tribe, it is serious business because I do feel like we are responsible. We're being called into great purpose, a cultural shift. I've experienced this also, this I don't have time. And as a parent, I also go, I don't have time not to be playful. That is serious business. My son needs me to be playful. My friends need me to be playful. And I also was hearing, Raina, when you were sharing the word valuable. What is valuable? What do we value? Playfulness is, is medicine. It, it must be. It must exist. Um, otherwise, I can't fully exist. I'm not having a full human experience. Mm-hmm. So I do feel like what do we value? How do we fight for it? You know, like that saying, fight for your right to party well, you know, is it fight for your right to be a whole human being? So that's, to me, the importance of creating a space together for people to return to yourself. And when we do that, when we allow the playfulness, we get to go back to work and be the light. And who there at work doesn't need all of us to come back whole into our relationships and our family and return fed. You know? So so do we, um, when we get through this threshold this gateway of reconnecting with our whole selves, with our bodies and, and stepping outside the lines and shaking the vibrations, you know, that are in our cellular memory loose. Mm-hmm. And we come back and, you know, and that ends right at, at 10 o'clock, right? <laughs> and we go home and we go to bed and the next morning we no. wake up and we go to work. Does it end? Well, so this is like how, that's what I'm asking. Like, does it does it <laughs> fundamentally change, yeah. or does it fundamentally change our job? To, does it does it change what we see our job as? Does, do we quit our jobs and do something else? Yeah. What happens? It's like it's just a filter on reality. It's just perspective, right? You can g- do the exact same thing one day in in one state of mind, and then do the exact same thing the next day in a different state of mind, and you'll have a completely different experience. <laughs> So it's it's really about, okay, am I going to approach the world <laughs> from this place of playful interest or am I going to approach the world from a place of judgment and efforting? You can have the most boring job in the world, but if you have like creative ways of, of seeing it and creative ways of interacting with the people that you work with and be playful with that, you're going to have a playful life. Mm. Rainy, you shared creative. Yes. And I think... Um, So one of the things I definitely want to share is I did have to merge from this. I think I was a playful little girl. I must have been. I was a child once, right? (laughs) And then all of a sudden life got really gnarly serious. And I think it has been for most of us if we survived into our 40s and gnarly for our generation in a different way, Um, like fear of connection, fear of playfulness, too serious. But I, I went through this period of time where my creativity got sucked out of me and For me, having to move from this very serious place in life, thinking that only people who have money and time are allowed to play. It's a luxury. Dropping into the dance community was this invitation into this rich, nourishing life, like we're family raising each other. 
and really being vulnerable and showing up in the dance community, in the music, and sharing in closing circle after what's really going on for us in a safe space. No matter where I am, whether it's with my family or an intimate relationship or in larger community or returning to my cubicle, my executive office, I'm not changing my job. I'm owning my experience and I'm able to drop in and accept ownership. What experience do I want to have in my life? How do I want to dance my dance at work? This place you mentioned about um, the light, like joy. How much of that am I going to allow in? How much am I going to allow myself to create that in a place of discomfort where the air conditioning is blazing and I'm uncomfortable, I'm cold, and the the lights are flickering at a speed that's irritating me. And when I start cracking open and having a full experience, how do I show up in this world that's not so comfortable? How do I create this way of being more of who I really am, more of what I really want? And then how do we bring that light out into our world, into this larger picture, and really share it? And it is interesting to me exploring that the light is as bright as dark as dark and as deep and wide as the dark is. How deep do we want to travel in it? Dance cracks those pieces of us open. So something that uh, strikes me that that a consequence of owning your whole experience brings you to a place where you have new tools with which to engage the world, mm-hmm. right? You, you mentioned, Wendy, several times in our conversation, this disabling process that happens. And when you are less disabled, you are more able. And it seems like the potential exists for you to find yourself in that uncomfortable condition <laughs> and have more tools at your disposal to change it, to shift it. Yeah, I'm laughing because I'm not taught and conditioned to embrace challenges. But when I learn to embrace them through my body, it's deep, it's rich. Um, When I allow myself to listen to my body, even listening to you, um, your journey just now with your words, finding the words, and then I start feeling energy in the palm of my hand. And so I can just say, hmm, interesting, I feel energy in the palm of my hand, I'm just going to open. So for me, challenge and discomfort when I see, I can see and feel my body start shutting down and my nervous system start tightening up and this fight starts happening. I don't want to fight. I want to love. I was watching you and noticing, um, and you were saying it's hard to find the words. I was stricken by the difference between the right brain and the left brain. And I was thinking that as we were talking, let's see, your right brain was getting more activated, the more creative side. And the more creative side, as it gets more activated, makes it much harder to be linear, much harder to find words, much harder to make sense. And I think that there is a little bit of a fear of, like, this doesn't make sense. And immediately our left brain comes in and says, okay, I'm going to make this make sense, right? Yes, that definitely happens. Right. That definitely happens. If we can let go of the need for things to always make sense, especially in particularly in the realm of play, we're inviting the mystery in. And when we invite the mystery in, we invite in that which we do not already know. And that's really what I'm imagining everybody is hoping to gain is like more access to the divine, more access to the mystery. Well, and and this is particularly interesting to me because I realize that 
you know, my life is driven by optimizing for growth. It has been, has historically been optimized for growth, optimized for growth, optimized for growth. But intrinsic to that attitude has been that I know how to optimize for growth, that I know how to align myself for growth. And what it, what it circumscribes out is the mystery. Yes. Right? That there's stuff I don't know. Right. That can bring, that, that I can receive. Right? See, it's a very active principle attitude where I'm going to go get it. I'm going to craft it. I'm going to drive it into my reality. And that's not, you know, that doesn't, I don't, I, I don't always, I don't always have the perspective to create the optimal path for growth for me. And so play, is that area where it doesn't appear to have value because I can't I can't see how it crafts my growth. Okay, well I I've just got to jump in here and say that first of all, would you agree with the statement that uh, an optimalized brain is one that operates both on the left and right hemisphere? This is absolutely the path that I'm learning. This is absolutely okay. true. Yeah. So when you are needing to make sense of and know how to do everything, you're only using half of your brain. It's not optimal. <laughs> and, and I want to share and jump in. Jump, jump. Oh, jump. So, I wanna, it's so exciting. It, it is a little bit scary, this um, what we call movement medicine, and I often don't like to call it dance because people think right. they get in there, no, I need to know how to dance. Right. No, I don't know how to dance. Um, That's a great term. I like it. Movement medicine, yeah. yeah. And I think when we are in our no, when I'm in my no, in my head, I'm in my ego, I want to control, I'm missing the magic. To me, it all boils down to the power of presence, whether it's me allowing myself to be with my terrifying woundedness from intimate relationship and breathe. I'm not going to run. I'm not going to numb out. I'm not going to listen to the judgments and my past experience. I want to have an experience in the now. I feel scared. I want to run. Just be with it. Just breathe with it. Just dance with it. Dance in the moment. Be in the moment. Just listening. Deep listening. And when I can listen to myself, I can now be brave and courageous enough to hear your own pain, not try to fix it, not try to change you. Be with you now and allow. And I had to stay, not run. That's a big piece I find in our culture. Let's go find what we need. Let's go get what we want. Let's create it definitely not here and that's a lie it's here it's here right now in this moment whether it's comfortable or uncomfortable i want to share a personal experience around um needing to make things happen right and i i want to thread this all back into the importance of play i had a whole chapter decade of my life where i essentially was making things happen and everything that happened in my life was because i made it happen and we won't go into the details, but long story short, I, I, what happened to me was I actually had a, a full adrenaline crash. My adrenal system just said, we're done, and had to take like a whole year off of doing anything. And it's taught me that there's a different way to do things, right? There's making things happen, and there's letting things happen. And I mean, I, I, can, I can already hear everybody's voice of like, oh, I'm just going to let everything happen, and I'll make everything happen. It's not about that, but it's, it's understanding that there is a choice to make something happen or to let something happen and to notice if you're making it happen 
or if you're letting it happen? If you're letting it happen, can you also be making it happen while you're letting it happen? In other words, this, the co-creative dance thing? Yes. This is the thing that's so interesting. Right. So it's like you can – relationship is an excellent example for this, right? It's like, okay, the person who is uh, driving the car in a partnership, right, they're driving the car. They're making the trip happen. But the person who is in the, the passenger seat is like, oh, well, I, you know, I, maybe I want to go over here or, oh, actually, I'd like to go over here. And they're letting that happen. But I say come to a contact dance class and experience what it's like to leave yeah, and connect. And contact is the best example, exactly. <laughs> because, yeah, Magic. because when you're letting something happen, you're also making it happen. Because by, by leaning away, somebody's going to lean towards. I've been walking down this path quite a bit more often with more awareness of the receptive principle. You know, it's Newton's law, right? For every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. So for every impulsion, there's something that's receiving that impulsion. For every act of doing, there's a canvas on which it is being done. And I think the challenge and for me, the, the really exciting part of my personal development now is when I realize that both of those things are happening in every moment in every element of my experience. Yes. And it's really the awareness right. of that, right, that, that I am doing and I'm also receiving all of that that's happening. And, you know, the microphones are, are reacting to my voice, mm. but they're also pushing on the air. Mm-hmm. Right. And they're sending signals. So they're doing as well. And, you know, this is one of the challenges of being in the present moment. What the heck does that mean? Right. And I think for me, what I'm starting to realize is being in the present moment is realizing that I can receive in that moment mm. as well as act. I can experience the divine feminine, the receptive part of the universe. Mm-hmm. And I can witness other people receiving as opposed to wondering what they're going to do, uh-huh. right? Uh-huh. And the, the narrower the time horizon, the closer I get to the being in the present moment, the more my attention can be applied to that dynamic instead of what's the plan. This is exactly why well, dance is such a, a potent tool for arriving in the present moment because What's the one thing that's always in the present moment? Your body. Your body is always here now. It can't be anywhere else. Your mind is almost always in the future or the past. But dance allows you to tap into this thing that I like to call the perfect tool for measuring the now. It's always measuring the now. Sounds, temperature, what do you see, what do you feel. Constantly, constantly measuring the now. So this is this awesome tool that you have to be totally present. All you got to do is show up and be in it. That's very cool. That's very cool. Yeah. While you're sharing, I'm, um, I've found through sitting in Wisdom Circle and being in conscious dance community and getting what piece of us is a quote-unquote story, what pieces of us are judgment, that exploration of our body wisdom, allowing this awareness to come through, that everything becomes play for me now. My tears my anger, my sadness. It's like what's happening in the moment, being aware of everything that's happening in this moment 
can be so overwhelming and so exciting. And what I love in the community that we're all exploring this spiritual experience, it's all playful. It may not be fun, but the dance produces this ability and this connection in our language, our speaking vocal language, and the truth of our bodies in that combination to express whether we're at work or with our families or our own inward conversation. But that deep creative expression is really powerful. All right. So as we as we wind up, the, any last thoughts you want to share, Raina? Well, I'd like to share that um, if anybody is interested in play and in creating a greater capacity for bliss and joy in their life, I would really recommend coming to dance and also coming to contact improv. The reason why I particularly love contact improv is because it puts you in contact with others and it helps you to be present in that. It's a real presence practice because because you're in physical relation to another body, you have to continually listen with your body to the other body. And so it keeps you in the now with every movement because you you don't know what's going to happen. It's improvisation. There's no moves. There's no prescribed way to do it. So what that forces you to do is stay present with what's happening right now because you don't know what's going to happen next. And it's an embodied way to dance with the mystery. It's also an embodied way to step out of time. I think that one of the big, you know, you talked about I can't play, I don't have time, right? I think a really important thing for our sanity as a species is to, to allow ourselves periods of timelessness where we just don't track the time. We're not paying attention to how much time we have or not. Um, we don't even know what time it is. So contact improv can help you be in that timelessness because it, it slows down your physical experience so much that y- you can escape from time. Um, the final thing I want to say about play, and it's actually very important, you can see it in, in nature. Animals learn about their capacity as beings through play. They play with each other as youngsters and they learn about what can they do with their mouths, with their bodies, with their strengths. And human beings have continually become more and more and more amazing in their physical capacity because we continue to play. We learn about what our edges are. And so playing will actually increase your capacity in the world on many different levels because you'll learn that your edges are not where you think they are. That's great. Thank you. Thank you, Raina. Wendy, any last thoughts? Or? Ah. <laughs> yeah, what comes up for me is just I invite people to disable judgment by owning your judgment and bring it into what we call a container which are the spaces that we create together to explore safely. And when I say the word safely, I want to say just because you don't feel safe doesn't mean that you're not safe. And that's an edge. Yeah. And I'm also open to, you know, sharing my contact information and for people to call and say, hey, I'm coming to this dance and I'm scared. Or, you know, and we do have a closing circle after to be able to express with words and it creates a, a community of people who are exploring and exploring all of who we really are, um, whether it be somebody close to you who's passed away and you're moving through grieving or you realize you're, there's these hang-ups in life that we have. I have them. I'm hung up. I'm stuck. It's really hard to get unstuck alone. We're definitely a courageous and deep and powerful community, like a tribe, and we get to, we get to explore as a tribe. 
and that return home that's not dependent on what you're being told through religion or a belief or a job, but that you get a space to be who you really are and explore. So if folks want to find out more about the work that you guys do, uh, Wendy, how can they reach you? I'm happy to offer my mobile phone number. My mobile phone number is area code 408-857-5090. But you have a, you have a Facebook page for, for the... I do. You can look me up. Um, my personal page is Wendy Marie. Um, you can also join us on Conscious Dance Tribe or Ecstatic Dance Silicon Valley. On like Facebook. That. And I'd love to see you there. Okay, great. And Raina, how can we find you? Well, um, you can find me at Ecstatic Dance in Los Gatos. You can also find me working at the 418. I'm uh, developing a contact improv university at the 418 Project in Santa Cruz. You can send me an email if you'd like to, redgingersnap at gmail.com. And those are the places that you can find me right now. Excellent. Ladies, thank you so much for an enlightening, fun, and inspiring conversation. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. I love this gathering. It's awesome. Yeah. And we'll be back. Mm. A personal tarot reading can offer you insight, information, enlightenment, and empowerment along your life's path. Hi-C is a professional tarot conversationalist and ritualist with over 10 years' experience. He's available for readings in a variety of formats, including parties and events. To schedule your personal tarot reading, contact Hi-C at tarotbyhi-c.net or email him at hic at fireflywillows.com. So, this show has been all about play. Learning to recognize play, remembering play, exploring the way wholeness brings us into the state of play, and using our bodies to be in the now, fully present, and open to the possibilities of play. i got to tell you, I have learned so much in producing today's episode that I'm blown away, and I'm led to share just a little bit about the Tarot card, the Major Arcana card, that is the Magician. Who is this character, and why does he relate, and how does he relate to play? Well, from today's program, I realize that, as Wendy said, looking for something somewhere else is an illusion. Everything we need is right here, right now, in this moment. That's one of the lessons of the Magician. Everything is at hand, if we just look for it. I guess there's a little bit of MacGyver in The Magician. It may look like magic, but sometimes it's beautiful, inspired resourcefulness. Reina's comment that engaging in play by allowing ourselves to receive instead of driving along the pathways of our intent leaves room for the universe to bring us into contact with what we don't know what we don't already know. It puts us into contact with the mystery, the goddess. There's a little high priestess connection here, too. She's the next card in the tarot, and I'm pretty sure she has an intimate relationship with the magician. The magician can draw from the void, from the mystery, and manifest into his reality. Annette showed us how integrating both halves of the brain entering into wholeness, 
is the path toward catalyzing our sacred creativity. Acting out of wholeness, too, brings us into the play state where joy and timelessness visit us. We can recognize this feeling as the feeling we had as a child when the world was truly magical. That state opens us up to nonlinear experience, essentially to serendipity that becomes a natural part of our lives. Living from the heart, not just the head, being totally in our bodies, not just working from our minds. Recapturing that capacity to be whole and be fully functioning, optimized, fully human, having a fully human experience. That's the path we just discovered. And it's the path to being fully capable, manifesting our heart's desire, and doing our best work in the world. In essence, it is the gift of the magician. When used for its highest purpose, isn't that what magic is for? Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's program. If you have questions or would like to revisit any of the material that we've covered today, visit us at fireflywillows.com slash L-I-V-E or on Facebook, facebook.com slash fireflywillows. Thanks again. Thank you for joining us on today's episode of Firefly Willows L-I-V-E. We hope you enjoyed the show. Join us next week as John Carousella and Mildred Lynn McDonald host our live on-air readings call-in show. Call in or listen as our hosts use their tools of psychic messages, runes, intuitive coaching, animal medicine, and energy healing to offer guidance for your life's path. This is Deb Carousella. Please join us next Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. Pacific Time on Firefly Willows L-I-V-E, Blog Talk Radio.